the VCA Voice podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marie Curl. Our goal with the VCA Voice is to showcase how VCA Animal Hospitals is taking care of the future of veterinary medicine. We'll bring our purpose to life through meaningful conversations about care, our culture, and the communities we serve. On today's episode, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Laura Haug. Dr. Haug is a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists and also a certified animal behavior consultant with the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. Dr. Haug is an associate at VCA Lexington Boulevard Animal Hospital in Sugarland, Texas. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? I am doing well. How are you? I am doing well, and I really appreciate you joining us. And this is going to be a really interesting topic today. So as we start off, I'm always curious about people's careers in veterinary medicine. So can you tell me a little bit about your career journey and what led you ultimately to become a veterinary behaviorist? Well, I grew up around a lot of animals. My mother in particular has always loved animals, had dogs. And when I was a child, we... I had just about everything. We had dogs and cats and rabbits and ferrets and finches, <laughs> and we rehabbed wild animals. Uh-huh. I showed dogs in competitive obedience and confirmation for years. Okay. And then as I moved into going to college, I admittedly at that point was kind of worried that if my day job was around animals all the time and all my hobbies were around animals, and I might get kind of burned out. So I actually started my college career intending to do ocean engineering. Wow. And on the way to class one day with one of my professors, we were chatting about my degree plans and when he found out I wanted to be an engineer. He's like, oh, you must like all the chemistry and physics the best. And without thinking, I said, no, I like the biology the best. <laughs> And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I realized I was making a mistake. And I went to the office the next day and I changed my major to Mm pre-med. And here I am. You know, I became a vet, started training dogs when I was 12 because my mother always thought it was important that our dogs went to obedience school. And then as I started showing, I got more and more interested in behavior So I decided I wanted to be a specialist. And at that point in time, behavior was new, a new specialty and Mm -hmm. growing. And I thought it could give me the best of both worlds, both doing behavior, but also doing new science and medicine at the same time. So I know you and I have talked previously, and I didn't realize you were involved in dog sports and showing at such a young age. What breeds did you start off with? Uh, I started training Dobermans. I grew up with Dalmatians, but we got our first Doberman in 1974. And then I got my first Doberman in 1980 and started training and showing. And then I did show a Dalmatian again years later. So most of my obedience and confirmation career, though, was in Dobermans. Oh, great. We're going to have an offline conversation about Dobermans and our dogs and new puppies. So we'll, we'll talk about that at a different time. But what is the path to become a behaviorist? So a behavior specialty, of course, is just like any other specialty where you get your veterinary degree and then you either have to do an internship, which I did do at Louisiana State University, Mm -hmm. or they will tell you you need the general practice equivalent. So some behaviorists didn't do an internship, but they may have spent a year or more in a general practice. 
And then you go into a residency program and sit your board certification. The behavioral medicine doesn't have as many university residency options as Mm -hmm. other specialties. So many behaviorists and behavior residents are in what we call non-traditional programs where they may do their study in a general practice or out in a private setting and work with a local or remote mentor to achieve all the criteria that they need for satisfying their residency requirements. So I actually started as a remote resident, but then when our residency program at Texas A&M came open, I went into their university because I figured I would get done faster for one Uh thing. And I didn't have other family obligations that prevented me from moving to a university town. So we still have many non-traditional residents in behavioral medicine, but the basic process is, as I said, similar to whether you're doing surgery or internal medicine or anything like that. Tell me how you became a part of ECA through this career journey. Well, I was on faculty at Texas A&M after I finished my residency, and it was a temporary position, though. And Mm -hmm. of course, you know, funding is life there, and the funding for my position ended, so I was starting to look for a new venue to practice. And my classmate had been working at Lexington Boulevard Animal Hospital for years, Mm -hmm. and I have great respect for her because she is an excellent clinician. And so I contacted her and asked her if she thought the practice might be interested in supporting a behaviorist. And within 24 hours, she (laughs) contacted me back and she Uh said, we'd like to chat. And so I went and met with the owners and we came to an agreement. So I started working at Lexington Boulevard and then VCA acquired the practice in 2017, and that's how we became part of VCA. So tell me a little bit about what a typical day looks like in your practice and what's involved in evaluating a patient for a behavior consultation. Evaluating the behavior cases is a little similar to other problems. We still do kind of a SOAP approach Mm -hmm. where we have owners fill out a quite extensive history form because we need to know a lot of background about the animals, you know, breeding, socialization, their medical background, how they live or their other animals or, you know, elderly people or children in the home, and then some extensive information about the actual behavior concerns that the Mm -hmm. owner may have. And then once we get the animal into the clinic, if we're able to do so in a low stress manner, we of course do a physical exam. We may do any appropriate diagnostics like we frequently run blood work or we might be doing radiographs to look for joint disease causing pain that might contribute to a problem. And then we come up with an assessment. We make an initial plan and put that into practice and then reevaluate on a regular basis. Sometimes we do remote consultations, especially for owners that don't live very close to us. Mm-hmm. We do have cases that we see from all over the country where we're working in conjunction with the animal's local veterinarian to help with those because obviously some cities don't have access to a board-certified behaviorist. 
And then we do see a lot of the local ones back frequently to work on behavior modification, reassess medical issues that may be contributing and, you know, readjust our plan according to how the animal's making progress. You talked about the history and owner involvement and your specialty, maybe more so than any other. Sounds like it really involves having that partnership with the client and both their willingness to be open and also to work through those behavior concerns to improve. Absolutely. You know, change is hard for everybody and it is sort of like a souped up version of having a client with a diabetic animal or mm-hmm. on a weight loss program, because if you don't have buy-in from the family, nothing's going to change. So we do obviously as much educating and coaching of family members as we do of the animal itself, because the behaviors don't occur in a vacuum. You know, they occur Mm -hmm. in the context of the home life or in the veterinary clinic or wherever. So all the people involved in those contexts have to buy in or be willing to help, Uh or we just don't have as much success as we could if we have better cooperation or buy-in, as we say. I know you work really closely with primary care veterinarians. So what kinds of cases are referred for your expertise and what kinds of patients are usually managed through their primary care veterinarian? We, of course, will see any level of problem or any type of problem. The ones that we see the most in relation to dogs are usually aggression cases, either aggression directed towards people or other dogs. Mm -hmm. We do see a lot of phobic and panic-related type problems like dogs that are too scared to leave the house, storm phobia, separation distress cases. Cats, it's mostly, again, nowadays aggression either with concurrent house soiling or marking, or sometimes just house soiling cases alone. I think a lot of practitioners feel more comfortable nowadays handling a lot of the feline elimination cases on their own. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we just obviously get the complicated ones, which is understandable. And I think a lot of the referrals just depend too on the comfort level of the practitioner for that particular, you know, specialty. Like even if I was in general practice, I would not do an orthopedic surgery. Mm -hmm. It's just not where my expertise is. And I might say there's a problem here. And then I would refer. I do handle a lot of gastrointestinal issues myself related to our behavior problems because I have a comfort with those. And so some practitioners have a fair degree of comfort handling storbophobic dogs and separation distressed dogs, you know, but then they like don't want to touch homes where the dog's growling or biting the child and they mm-hmm. refer those right away. So, you know, I think there's a wide level of what practitioners are comfortable dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Are there common ages in dogs and cats when behavioral problems start or really does it run the spectrum of age? It runs the gamut and it does depend to some degree on what problem. So for example, noise phobia, we can see them come in at any age. Mm -hmm. When we see issues with aggression, most of the time it's at least going to start becoming an issue somewhere in the six-month to three-year age range. That doesn't mean that people always seek help then, but if you Mm -hmm. look back in the history, that developmental phase there, kind of the equivalent of going from preteen to teen to adult in a person is a very common age for issues with 
fear, anxiety, and aggression to show up. And that does kind of mirror what happens in people, because if you look at some of the illnesses in humans like bipolar, schizophrenia, some of those disorders are most likely to start to show symptoms in the teenage and early adulthood years. And Mm -hmm. that is partly related to changes in brain development. that a lot of behavior concerns that you do see in adult pets could have been averted with some training and knowledge at the start of life and pet ownership for those clients. What are the most important things that you would want for new owners of puppies or kittens to know now? In terms of prevention, the things that we can control, because for example, we can't control genetics, mm-hmm. but the things that we can control, of course, are good health care. We know that puppies and kittens that have poor perinatal health or health as you know younger ages are more likely to have behavior problems so good perinatal health and good behavioral structure you know like understanding puppies and kittens need uh, a safe environment they need an environment that is molded to allow them to express appropriate behavior and limit their ability to start learning or practicing inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. So just as an example, I find that giving young dogs access to dog doors is usually in the long run, not an ideal course of action because dog doors allow them to just impulsively fly in and out of the house, barking and carrying on about anything that happens outside. And it kind of lets them rehearse impulsive kind of leap before you look type behaviors. Oh, wow. And then good socialization that needs to be done really to some degree starting at birth. So that's the breeders or the foster's responsibility up to about 12 to 14 weeks of age. I think it's also important for our profession and pet owners to recognize that it is detrimental to a dog to wait until all of its vaccine series is completed to start socialization because by then the sensitive socialization period is over. Mm -hmm. So we need to find ways to help owners and educate owners on how to do safe, effective socialization during that vaccination period. You know, everybody benefits from an education, and that includes our animals because they have to learn how to live in a human society. And pet owners have to learn that dogs and cats are dogs and cats, and they have certain needs. So the education's kind of on both ends for the pet owners and for the animal, so that we make sure they have the skills and the lessons to maximize their potential in our society. You know, for years when I was in clinical practice, I taught clients don't begin socialization with other dogs until the vaccine series is finished. So clearly I was making a mistake there, which doesn't surprise me that I make mistakes all the time still. But what are the important ages for, let's just talk about puppies and and we can talk about kittens if we want to, but what are those important kind of age categories for socialization and what should happen? So puppies will be able to start tactile 
an olfactory socialization at birth because okay. those senses are operating already. Mm-hmm. So when you read literature, they'll say the peak socialization period starts at three weeks of age. And that's just because, you know, by then their eyes and their ears are open. But we can't forget that to some degree, if you parse it down, socialization actually starts in utero. But certainly by the time their eyes and ears open, then we can do other sensory socialization too. So like three-week-old puppies can hear and smell things and start to see things. And then as they start getting ambulatory at, you know, that kind of four to five week of age range, individuals that do really good socialization will have a variety of alternating sensory experience items in the whelping box, like Mm -hmm. different textures for them to walk on, different fabrics, climbing opportunities, getting under things, through things. Uh, We really want owners to get their puppies to meet a variety of other people. So tall people, short people, men, women, different ethnic backgrounds, even different diets, to be honest with you, because it creates a different you know, odor in their body and and their personal odor signature so that they are like, hey, this is normal. I've met this. I've seen this. Nothing threatening happened. It is very important during any of these socialization outings that it be done so that the puppy has a positive experience. We don't even necessarily want a neutral experience. We want it to be positive so that they go outside and they go, wow, meeting people, no matter what they look like or how they act, is just awesome because I have so much fun and I feel safe when I do it. So socialization is behavioral vaccination. Wow, that's just fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about cats now. I know that the American Association of Feline Practitioners recently updated some cat-friendly guidelines What are those guidelines are available and useful for clients? Um, Certainly, yeah, they had, and years ago, I think it was AHA to put out um, some canine and feline behavior guidelines that were really helpful. Um, AAFP is a really nice source. And for both professionals and pet owners alike, the Fear Free Happy Homes website, the Fear Free Happy Homes is actually targeted specifically for pet owners. But it has some excellent resources on just, you know, helping pets live a better life and making, obviously, trips to the vet a little bit easier. Of course, there are other behavior websites like the website for the, you know, diplomates of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. There's the American Veterinary Society for Animal Behavior. They have a lot of nice references for professionals and pet owners on their websites. And then some of the good behavior consultant organizations like Pet Professional Guild, the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, Karen Pryor Academy. There are a lot of good resources out now for people, but there are also a blossoming number of sources and websites out there that are still promoting archaic behavior information as well. So I think it's always good for owners to, you know, contact their veterinarian or some type of a professional site like that to make sure they're getting good resources and that they're not accidentally getting derailed by following poor information. 
Well, we're going to capture some of those websites and we'll put them in the show notes for listeners who might want to explore further. Do they also have training recommendations or are there similar groups or societies that certify trainers that can be helpful? Right. The website for the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists Mm -hmm. does have a blog or a handout on their site about how to help choose an appropriate trainer. The ABSAB also has some information on their site about picking reputable trainers. The Pet Professional Guild has, I believe, their own certification process. And the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants has their own certification process. Mm -hmm. So the Karen Pryor Academy, uh, Pet Professional Guild, the IAABC, those are places that I go when I'm looking for a trainer in an area that I'm not familiar with. I will start with those sites to do a little vetting to begin with and look at their website and look at some of their philosophies Okay. and then try to determine if I think that trainer sounds reasonable, you know, to start a relationship. talk a little bit about the concepts of low stress handling and fear-free practice and a lot of the compassionate care programs of making the experience of going to the veterinarian and being in the veterinary hospital better for pets. What would what do you want for really not just veterinarians but all of our associates, technicians, assistants, customer service representatives and anyone in our hospitals? What's important in those practices? We're certainly in a better place today than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're in a better place. But we still have a lot of work to do. And I think some of it is working on changing our, our mindset and our set point. And what I mean by that is that there is always kind of a minimum standard of care. And I use anesthesia maybe as an example, because when I started in veterinary medicine, you know, the standard of care for anesthesia was, you know, you put the dog on the table and you injected them. I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but we injected them with ketamine rompin. And, you know, you might put a trach tube in, but you didn't hook them up to oxygen and they had no monitoring on. And, you know, my childhood vet did a GDV surgery on a dog just with gloves and a mask. You know, like we'd be horrified by that level of care mm-hmm. in today's medical world. You know, like we just wouldn't do it. Like, right. Absolutely. So we have to change that set point and start protecting the animal's psyche with as much vehemence as we do their medical conditions. Like we have to have a different set point. And instead of just taking a fear free certification and getting the paper, and then continuing to do the same things you've done for the last 15 years, I think we need to make an effort to actually integrate this into our day-to-day routine and say, I just need to look at this different and see it differently and feel it from the animal's perspective. For practices that are interested in improving I know that you've mentioned fear-free and I know that low stress is a good program. How does a practice really embrace these compassionate care initiatives? I think it needs to be a 
unified concept for the practice so that everybody helps each other mm-hmm. because you know we do especially when we get busy we kind of get into a pattern like I do it this way I hold it this way and we're almost not consciously thinking about what we're doing and maybe we need somebody to say hey hold off remember we're going to try to do this different now and can we try it this way to make good low stress handling work in a clinic and to really move forward, improving the behavioral welfare of the animals, everybody in the clinic has to have buy-in to that process and that philosophy so that there's unity and not fragmentation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's always amazing to talk to you and you're able to express things in a way that really, really helps me to think differently about this. And and as you and I have talked before, there's many areas still yet to conquer in behavior and patient care between both clients and veterinary teams. So thank you so much, Laura. Sure. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing. Don't forget to leave a review to let us know your thoughts and share the episode with friends. Follow VCA Animal Hospitals on social media at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more inspiring stories, visit our website at vcavoice.com. Thank you.